Well, good morning. Every once in a while, I do like to cook, and particularly as being a man, it's very stereotypical that it's uh, meat. And I prefer, even though I do enjoy a chicken and some fish, I enjoy eating a cow and some pig. Praise the Lord that he allows us to eat what was normally unclean, now it's clean. If you don't get that joke, read the book of Acts. <laughs> but just because I enjoy cooking the meat does not necessarily mean I'm necessarily good at it. And I'll describe my cooking as sometimes a blind squirrel finds a nut. And so what I do is that I will research in the time that my wife and I will you know, decide to treat ourselves and go to HEB, uh, the only grocery store in town, or Granzines, you can get their meat there. And so be able to say, you know, we're going to pay a little extra to buy some meat, to enjoy some time. And usually we save like the steak dinners for like those in-house date nights. And so what I do, then I research online. I try to find some chefs on YouTube and to say, all right, well, I saw what you did and the end result was amazing. And I want to do that. So I tell Candace, hey, buy some, don't buy dry herbs, buy the fresh herbs, buy the butter. You know, even though it's two steaks, I need two sticks of butter. Um, and make sure it's not a half-inch steak. I need like at least two inches of meat. I need some buying time, okay? And, and I want and make sure you get the, you know, the, the cast iron skillet on the stove. And I say, all right, how do we do this well? So I watch and watch and watch. And I'm doing it, but then I kind of get carried along. You know, knowing that it's a special night, knowing that the music's playing, and I'm kind of dancing and grooving. I'm like, let's throw an extra herb in there. Like, let's add some more seasoning, add some more salt. I'd throw another stick of butter. Who, what would that hurt? Um, and in the end, it, I mean, it smells good, it looks good, and we're about to enjoy uh, dinner tonight, and I feel like I contributed in such a way that's going to be amazing. It is the pinnacle of the evening, and I'm eating salted rubber because I did it wrong, because I didn't follow the instructions the way that the, the chef said, here is the plan, this is what it can look like if you just follow said plan. Instead, I kind of did my own thing, going, okay, I kind of... I think I can know, I know better. You know, the sad truth is, is, even as Christians, we can come in into even a worship service like this, doing it the way that we wanted to do it, to add our own razzle and dazzle, to say, I think we should have the lights at this temperature, we should sing these particular songs, when forgetting it's not about us, it's following the directions of what God has given us and understanding who he is and following he calls us to do, and especially with worship. My fear is, is that most of the time, our worship is really fueled by our preferences. We want more hymns. We want more contemporary. We want the lights brighter. We want the lights darker. We want the seats arranged like this, or we want a nice little circle. We want them facing that wall for some odd reason. We bring our preferences into, into worship. In reality, it's highly probable that our worship isn't really truly worship. Instead, it's truly worshiping ourselves. And in God's eyes, it's going to be abominable worship in his view. And so in our text, we're going to see Matthew give two clear examples, one of true worship and one of false worship. And so I invite you with me to turn to Matthew chapter 2, Verses 7 through 12, even though Pastor Hayden just read it and it's on the screen, pull out your Bibles. If you have it on your phone, bring it there. If you don't have any of it, we have Bibles in the back for you every single week for you to have and grab so that you can put your eyes on God's Word with us. But what we need to see is that the unfolding of God's redemptive plan through Christ, and this is the focus of it, 
needs to motivate us to proper worship of him. Seeing his plan unveiled should draw us to go, wow, God, how do I follow you? As I should have looked at the, you know, the credibility of the chefs that I'm watching on YouTube, I should have followed the directions to the T. But I didn't because I didn't necessarily respect them. I didn't follow them in the way that I should have followed them. And for us, we need to make sure that we have a right view of who Christ is, like some of the people in this text, so that we can properly worship him. But let's first turn and look at what, how not to worship him. So let's look, read verse 7 once again. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Now remember, two weeks ago, Pastor Hayden preached on the, the, the previous six verses and reminding us like, the star that they were looking at was the star that was described in the book of Numbers. The star that would rise up and that the, the ruler, the scepter of Judah would come and crush the head of the serpent, thus fulfilling what was promised all the way in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, saying the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so this is what the, the star that it's referring to as a reminder back at verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, go and search diligently for the child and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, if we just stopped there, we, like the Magi, probably would conclude Herod is a nice guy. I heard about his crazy reputation about killing his wives and killing his children and killing his siblings just to retain the throne of God. But hey, he even heard that in Micah 5 too, he asked, hey, when, where's this king supposed to be born? Oh, in Bethlehem. He would have like, oh, this is the Messiah. This is the God king to come. Of course, I, I want to worship him. I need you to search him out diligently. Tell me where he is so I can worship him. If we just isolate that, we would you know, wrongly conclude that Herod wanted to truly worship God. But thankfully, even with this, you know, the two verses here, God through Matthew is even revealing Herod's heart. Now, we find it later in verse 16, which we'll talk about next week, about how Herod only wanted to find, it, find Jesus so he can kill him. But even right here, when he said he wanted to meet with, meet with him secretly, Right there is the key word to say, hey, I want to meet in secret. He's already in public. He's like, hey, guys, I need to have a private conversation in the back. Every time, most of the time in the Bible, he's like, hey, it's secretly, it's hidden in darkness. I'm going to hide from God's sight some of my own plans, which God can't see my heart. God can't see my plans. Yeah, I'm going to look like I'm going to worship in reality. I'm going to worship myself. And for Herod, it's going to worship himself to the point to go, you know what? If this is truly the God king, he's at his most vulnerable. He is a child that I can kill right now. So you know what? I'm not going to send any guards. I'm not going to go myself. I'm going to use these wise men to get what I want, which is going to continue my throne. And so we see Herod's pride and selfishness is so clearly on display, even with some pretense of false worship. But what Herod looked like is what the psalmist described in Psalm 55 is that he looks like a companion you know, stretching out his you know, hand towards a friend. His speech was smooth as butter, but yet war was in his heart. Herod also looks like, in Proverbs 26, 20, 26 24 to 25, Proverbs 26, 24 to 25, how he's disguising himself. And really, he's harboring deceit right now, speaking graciously, but don't believe him. Because there are seven abominations in his heart. That's the proverb right there. And now we even see that later, in, even right here in Herod, and later as Scripture is revealed, to see it would show what Herod is truly like. He is trying to be smooth and trying to be gracious. In reality, his heart was far from God. 
His lips cried out, I want to follow and worship God. But God knew the heart and said, his heart is far from me. He falsely worships me. Even though the wise men did not know the deception just yet, God did. And God, through Matthew, is trying to reveal this to us to see that this is the depths of self-focused worship looks like. Where someone like Herod, who loved himself so much that God gave, himself, God gave Herod to him into his desires. And what Herod meant for evil, God's like, I'm going to use it for my good. I'm going to display my glory. And we'll find that a little bit later as we read on. But God knows the heart. And we can't think that, hey, well, this is Herod. He's an unbeliever. He was destined to do this. No, Christian, don't think you stand lest you fall. There is a clear danger that if we approach the way that we worship God, focus on ourselves, we will begin to more, look more like Herod, and that should scare us. And what Herod should have done, and what we need to do as Christians, is point number one, is that we need to demolish all of our false worship. You can also jot down Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, as you write this point. And as we'll preach on this text in about you know, five to seven years from now, the pace that we're going, is that Jesus is saying, hey, here's, some, here's an idea on the Sermon on the Mount. This is what false worship can look like. It can look like Herod, but it can look like this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to what? Be seen by them. Not God, them then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. This verse can apply to Herod right now. He wants to look holy in front of the wise men, and he did. And God's like, hey, guess what? You earned your reward, and you're getting nothing more. Because I'm going to thwart your plan, which we'll read in a moment. But as Jesus explains later in the, throughout uh, chapter 6, he talks about giving, he talks about praying, he talks about fasting, and how all those things are good, and all those things are commanded to us by God to do, how quickly they can be twisted into false worship. Because we can give in such a way that can say, look how generous I am. Well, who's the God of your universe, God or you? What's really you? I'm fasting in such a way that I want to let people know that I'm fasting, who, who's getting the attention? The point of fasting is to redirect your heart and mind to God, but in reality, you're just redirecting your heart and mind to yourself. And that way we pray, like, oh, Pastor Evan, can I just pray on stage? I want to you know, pray us out on the end of the service. I just, wanna, I just have a heart for prayer. Well, that shows me that you really don't care about God. He's really about caring your, you care about yourself and lifting you up. You're lifting yourself up. And it's so easy for us to do this. But the way that we need to see our false worship is reality, it's, it's false idols. And really the biggest idol is going to be ourselves. The biggest idol is ourselves. Think of it this way. As you, if you heard me preach before, I hate ants. Like they belong outside. I don't mind seeing them there. But if they enter my home, I'm going to wipe them out. However, ants are just an inconvenience. If you found out today that you had termites somewhere in your home, you wouldn't just go, oh, I'll just deal with that later. You're calling an exterminator. You're going, how big? How much? How extensive? Because, you know, the termites, are, unlike ants, are actually destructive. Think about it. Our, the purpose of our homes is, is to keep us safe from the elements, really. Like right now, we're like, oh, praise the Lord, it's cold, the Texas heat is over, amen! But we wouldn't be seeing that if we didn't have insulation in our home, if we didn't have wood on our home, and especially if we didn't have heat, a heat, you know, a heater in our home. Be like, Lord, please bring back that Texas heat because I'm cold. 
But the way that we need to view our idols is like termites because they will just, you can't see them right away. You have to look for the symptoms. You have to look for that fine dust of wood, the random holes in the wall and go, I need to find how extensive this is. Because if a termite, you're going to cover your whole house, move into a hotel, spread poison to your home to murder and exterminate all termites on the premises. You're not going to show any prejudice. You're not going to show any mercy to these termites. You're going to find, I'm going to hunt every single one of these down. I don't care how many they are. I will kill them all. And that's how we need to view our idols. Unfortunately, we don't. We see an idol in our life, we kind of, say, we kind of want to hold on to it. We kind of want to play with it a little longer. We kind of don't want to mess with it for a few more moments. Instead, what we need to do is to treat an idol like a termite and say, I need to exterminate you. I don't give you a name. I eliminate you and I demolish you because you are going to drive me to falsely, falsely worship God and I need to truly worship God. And don't think Herod is just, okay, this is just for unbelievers to hear. This is how the letter of 1 John ends in verse 21 of chapter 5. It says, little children, he's talking to Christians, keep yourselves from idols. So this is a fight, not just for the Christian, like Herod saying, you need to demolish your false worship so you can truly worship the king. We as Christians need to make sure we're killing idols in our lives so we can focus on truly worshiping the king. Well, how can we go about this? Well, first off, you just need to do this by gospel treason, by Bragbigny in our bookstore. Unfortunately for you this morning, it's sold out. So next week we'll have more. I'm saying buy it because he gives such practical help and it's based on scripture that's going to help you be able to help you not, well, to help you demolish false worship in your lives. For example, just to, to quote him, is that the first, one of the first things we need to do is that we need to establish and maintain a wartime mentality. I mean, think about it. We put on the full what of God? Armor. Is it because we want to look shiny and nice? And we'll play like Lord of the Rings outside? No, it's because we're in a real fight right now. Satan holds no mercy for anyone. Satan doesn't hold back on any person. He's throwing fiery darts at us, fiery arrows at us. So we need to put on his armor. So we need to establish and maintain a wartime mentality. But here's the good news. And to quote him, is the good news that God gives us everything we need to maintain that wartime mentality. To continue on, he gives us his grace. He gives us his help. First in salvation and then continual grace as we li live, as we look forward to the full culmination of living with Christ for eternity. He gives us his grace and his help and he gives us his Holy Spirit. If you have Christ in you, if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, this is the good news. You have God in you. We have no excuse, no reason to sin. We have the most powerful being in the universe inside of us. That's an amazing thing that so we can keep that wartime mentality going, God, I can fight because I have you in me. And we have his word. This is why Pastor Hayden and myself and your life group leaders are saying, hey, make sure you're daily intaking. It's not some checklist to feel good about yourself or to puff up in more knowledge. This is what this can do. It can lead you towards Christ, lead you to salvation in Christ, to lead you to a Christ-like walk in Christ. This is your sword, as Ephesians 6 talks about. And this is why it's so important. In order to demolish false worship, we need to be in God's word. And not only that, we get to stand strong on the gospel of the work of Christ. The work has been paid for so we can go in victory. 
And on top of that, here's something cool. He gives us direct access to the throne through prayer. Remember, we're in the Gospel of Matthew. You have to think about, okay, what, what Gospel account was the one where the veil was torn that separated mankind from God and the temple? It's the Gospel of Matthew. And now that the veil is torn, we have direct access to God. We don't need to go to Jerusalem anymore to sacrifice any more animals because the sacrifice has been done, paid for in Christ. And now we have a direct line in prayer. So in order for us to establish this wartime mentality to demolish our false worship is to make sure that we're in prayer. And finally, in his book, he writes, and to help, and to, we have the help and encouragement of fellow believers in our lives. And this is why we're always talking about life groups every single week. This is why we talk about the community of the church, because it takes all of us to encourage us to keep going, to keep fighting. Life is hard. We're, we're living in a fallen world that's fighting against everything that God has to stand for. Not just culturally, but think about just the world in general. The world is dying. I mean, this is why animals die, people die, and the creation is, is slowly dying. Because of sin. And that's why God says, I'm going to wipe this whole planet out and bring in a new heaven and the new earth. Before that, I need to redeem some people so I have a people to worship with me in this new heavens and new earth. So what are some ways that we can establish this wartime mentality? Here's three things that, is, that are from his, the book, Gospel Treason. First, we need to soak in God's word. I didn't say read God's word. I said soak it in. Reading God's word so you can learn what it has to say, studying what it has to say, for what reason? So then God can use it to change your heart, to change your mind, to change your hands, to change your feet, your hands. In the book of Proverbs, fun fact for you today, he's talking about eyes, hands, feet. It's what you're looking at. It's what you're doing with your hands. And then the, the feet are as on the path that you're on. And so we need God's word to change where we're looking, change what we're doing, and changing the direction that we're going. The second thing we need to do is to hang on to God's family, the church. I exhorted the men yesterday at the breakfast to say we can't just have surface level community here. We have to be engaged. We invite people over to our homes. We have dinners. We have conversations. We connect with them. We, we connect. Even a lot of times you talk with me, it's either like football right now or Lord of the Rings for some reason. But we need to engage in each other's lives. We need to engage and say, hey, I need to get my hands dirty into your life and to help you pull you up. I might get dirty. I need you to help pull me up. I need to bear your burden and get a little muddy with you to walk forward towards Christ, focused on one thing, laying aside everything that's holding us back and focusing on Christ. And, that, and how do we do that? It's through God's church. Because we can encourage one another to continue to maintain that wartime mentality to demolish the false worship in our lives. And then finally, we keep crying out to God. If you are in a lot of pain or in a lot of mourning, I recommend reading Psalm, the Psalms, especially the chapters, you know, chapter 40 to 49, 50 to 59, 60 to 69, because you'll see there that you see these authors, David and others, cry out to God. He's like, you're the king of the universe. You're the one that's more powerful than anything. Of course I'm going to turn to you. I have direct access to you. I need you, God. And that's how we continue to maintain this wartime mentality because it's hard. And that's why we need God all the more. A second way that we help demolish our false worship, again, again taken from this Gospel Treason book, which again, I love this book. If you're just impatient, buy it on Amazon today. It'll be here in probably a couple hours because Amazon, they're doing stuff. 
I love them, but it's creepy. The second thing we need to do is that we need to make choices that starve our idols. Making choices that starve our idols. Remember, Herod was so focused on himself up to the point that he couldn't do anything but love himself. And that's what we, have, we all do, especially before we are redeemed. And if you know, as Christians, we have to continue the fight to starve out our old self, to put off the old self, Ephesians chapter 4, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of Christ in true holiness and true righteousness. So how do we do this? We need to live a commandment-oriented life instead of a feeling-oriented life. This isn't works-based theology. Works-based theology and fundamentalism says works can save you. Only There's one work that can save you. It's the work of Jesus Christ. That's what saves you. But now he says, I saved you to do the work of actually living out the life that reflects who I am correctly, but you need me to do it. You need me to change you. You need me to give you strength. You need me to keep focusing. That's what we need to do. And how do we do that? We focus on Christ's commands. When we realize our marriage is going south, we don't just go, I just need help. We say, no, God, what does your word have to say? Got it. When our relationship with our children is starting to go sour or is sour, what do we do? We go to God's word and say, okay, God, got it. When our relationship with our grandkids or old friendships break and fall apart because of sin, we go, God, what do I need to do? I need to go to your word. Okay, I got it. Because focusing on God's commands is going to take the focus off ourselves and off ourselves. Because feeling-oriented is all about us. Oh, I just didn't feel the sermon. It doesn't really speak to me. Well, that's just focusing on you. I just didn't feel the worship today. Just that the songs didn't get up. There's a reason why feeling-oriented lives, you can't really describe it with words because there are no words. Because this doesn't exist. Because God says, here is my word that I've explicitly given you, and this is how you can worship me. And don't remember, God's commands aren't burdensome. They're good. And they're helpful. Second way that we can make choices to starve our idols. First, we live a commandment-oriented life. Secondly, is that we focus on pleasing God over pleasing ourselves. It's coming here today going, okay, God, what do you want me to know? What do you want me to see? What do you want me to understand? God, how am I not living a life according to you? And God, help change me, renew my mind. It's not walking into church service saying, oh, I kind of wish the temperature was a little bit warmer. I wish the screen was a little bit brighter. I wish I didn't play that song. It's not going to life going, I can't wait to share what I learned just so I can look smart and good. It's not just even your own quiet time to go, Ooh, what can I learn about God so I can just share it on social media for the purpose of making me look like a scholar. All those things, you know, learning about God and sharing them, that's good. Going to life group prepared, that's good. Coming here to corporately worship with the saints, that is good. But it's, it can be you know, an abomination if it's all about ourselves. And for Herod, he is just the warning side for us to go, this is what you can look like to the point you want to take on God. In reality, that's what we're doing in, in some sense. And finally, the way that we can make choices to starve our idols is keeping our feelings tethered to the truth of God's word. Don't hear me say this. We, we have emotions. What I'm not saying is like, don't have emotions. We are a frozen chosen just waiting for God to take us and we get to experience him forever. That's not at all what God has called us to do. Not even what the reformers called the church to do back in the Reformation. Or what Christ is saying to do when he was living here on earth. We have emotions because God has emotions. We are created in his image, in his likeness. Remember, God gets angry. 
God gets happy. God gets sorrowful. And God is joyful. All those emotions that we experience, but how do we make sure that it's not about us? Well, we focus on making sure it's about God. Saying, God, I'm angry right now, but help me to remember what God's word has to say about this situation. God, I'm just heartbroken. I'm mourning at the loss that I'm experiencing. But God, what does your word have to say? Help me. God, I'm frustrated. God, I'm anxious. God, I'm depressed. Or even, God, I'm overjoyed. I got the job I wanted. I have the child I finally I wanted and prayed for. I finally have the marriage I desired. Even God's word in the highest of our lives can tether us because even the good things have become our idols. And then the bad emotions, quote unquote, can drive us to despair away from God. Both the good and the bad and seemingly bad in our lives can drive us away from God. But God's word tethers us to God to properly apply the, emotion, uh, the emotions. Again, I turn to you to Psalm 40 to 49, 50 to 59, 60 to 69, because you're going to see how you know, these men cried out with their great emotions, but it was tied and tethered strongly to God's word. And they were able to live faithful lives because of it. And the implication is that if we you know, demolish the false worship in our lives, we'll be actually equipped to properly worship God in any season at the birth of your child or the death of your child, in the beginning of your marriage or the, or the unfortunate event of the ending of your marriage, the earning the job and losing the job, getting the home and losing the home. We can properly worship God no matter what season in life because we have demolished false worship. But now let's turn our attentions away from false worship and now to proper worship with the wise men. So go back to Matthew chapter 2 with me, if you're not already there, and go back to verse 9. It reads, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen, remember the star that was promised in Numbers, when it, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, this could be kind of an you know, illusion, a callback to, uh, to what Israel experienced in the desert where there's a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud leading Israel. It could be. That's not necessarily the focus of this passage. We'll, focus, we'll drive that focus in just a second. Verse 10, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And in the end, they fell down and worshiped him. Then they opened the treasures, they offered him gifts. What gifts? Gold and frankincense and more, something that we, most of us are very familiar to in terms of the Bible story. I don't know when the last time you had frankincense in your home. But let's jump back to verse 9. Something I want to point out to you is the word behold. And I want you to do this throughout the gospel of Matthew. You know me, I'm not big on underlining Bibles, but I will do it with you guys. I don't have a pen up here, otherwise I would. Is underline the word behold. Because that's an important word. It's odd. It's like, why? Okay, why? Well, Matthew uses it over 40 times in his gospel. And the purpose of this word behold is to catch your attention. It's like when you're writing notes, you put an asterisk, like don't forget this. This is what Matthew's doing. He's saying, behold, pay attention to something really important right now. It's the star that they have seen. That's what you say we're trying to pay attention to. And it was guiding them. So there's a divine star that was guiding these men to the child, to the Messiah. And when they saw the star, they're just like, oh, cool, there it is again. Let's go follow it again. No, it was, they, had ex they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And I also want you to underline the word exceedingly because this Greek word is used only a couple other times in Matthew to, de to describe a strong emotion. 
It's bookend. There's one time it's used in the beginning right here in the middle in Matthew about 17, 16, and also at the very end in Matthew 27. That same Greek word describes the emotion, the centurion who saw Christ witness the earthquake that we're going to see in the Gospel of Matthew, who saw what happened, and he said, and this is when he says, truly this is the Son of Man. But the Greek word is used to describe, and they were filled with awe. This was a terrifying notion that the Roman centurion experienced in the cross, seeing Christ on the cross going, whoa, this is the Christ. It's a great emotion. It's a huge emotion. And so, circling right back to Matthew chapter 2, these wise men had this great emotion of, instead of fear and awe, of exceedingly joy because they realized they're finally seeing God with us. Because that was Jesus' name, remember? God with us. And so they're like, we're exceedingly excited because we get to see the God who is finally with us, who's going to save us from our sins, the Messiah to come. And so, since they knew who Christ was, it makes sense in verse 11 that they fell down and worshipped him. This wasn't just a a kneel down and paying homage to a a king. No, this is a just prostrating themselves, humbling themselves. Think about it. It's like, you see my little son. He's almost two years old running around. Imagine, you know, prostrating yourself to, to my son. You're, you're a grown adult. You have a job. He has nothing. I provide him everything. But here's this little child of Mary and Joseph, and they, write, and they realize, oh, this little child, sure, he might be a child, but this is the king of the universe. We have to bow down and worship him. You can underline both times the worship here and also with Herod, because that Greek word for worship is also the same Greek word used to translate the Hebrew word for worship found in Exodus chapter 20. Next is 20. It talks about how you should not bow down to them or serve them. We're talking about false gods. That same Hebrew word is translated in the Septuagint, the Greek, you know, the Greek um, translation of the Old Testament, the Bible that probably the disciples had at the time of Christ. And it's used to describe, hey, they knew not to bow down and worship to a false idol. So when they're bowing down to this child, that Matthew, God through Matthew is trying to communicate that this child is no ordinary child. This child is God in human flesh. And what do they offer him? Well, they recognize him as a king to point, prove the point further. They visit some pagan magi. They're like, oh, this is the king of Israel. It's nice to bow down. Like, no. They knew who he was, and that's why they bowed down and worshipped him. And this is why they gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. You know, gold is a gift for a king. Frankincense is a gift of of worship, and myrrh is a gift of anointing. You know, we think of, you know, John 19, how Nicodemus brought the myrrh to anoint Jesus after he died. And sure, there could be a reference towards that. But the Old Testament in Psalm 45, and especially in Song of Solomon, talks about anointing someone you respect in in the book of the Psalms. Also, in the book of Song of Solomon, it's anointing of the loved one that they love. The two, you know, the, hu- the husband and the wife that love one another, talking about using myrrh to anoint one another. And so here they have this kingly gift. And we can go, wow. But this is why it's important to know your Old Testament Bible. Because even though we're about to read, the, you know, next week go through three different prophecies, Matthew's going to go, thus fulfill the scripture, thus fulfill the scripture, thus fulfill the scripture. Without saying right here, he's saying, thus fulfill the scripture. He doesn't explicitly say that. What you need to do, maybe even uh, above this uh, part in your Bible, write down 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. 1 Kings 10, 1 through 13. Because what Matthew's doing here, which it was, really what God is doing with the events, Matthew's just recording them, 
What God is doing is using this event as apologetic to prove a couple things. Think about your Old Testament for a little bit. When was a time that a Gentile, maybe a high-ranking Gentile, came to Israel looking for the king? If if you're a good Bible student, you know that's the Queen of Sheba, a Gentile, coming to see King Solomon, the king, at the height of Israel's power. And this, this Israel height was no ordinary height. This is what the Bible is describing in Edenic height. In Edenic state, that Israel was almost like what it was in the garden just in the beginning. It was like the garden that we're going to. And here's a Gentile coming to the king. And when Matthew, oh God, through Matthew, is trying to show, but someone greater than Solomon is here. And he actually says it explicitly in Matthew 12. Because who is greater? The king at his height where the king, uh, uh, a Gentile queen comes to say, I need to know who you are? Or a little baby boy? Where th- you know, th- you know, more than three where these wise men come and bow down to that as this little child when he's done nothing in his earthly ministry yet. He's done nothing here on earth. Even though he knows, we know through the scripture he created the world. But right in this moment, he's done nothing on earth yet and yet they bow down to him and worship him. Queen Sheba didn't worship Solomon. The wise men did. Solomon's at the height of his power. God was at the most humble part of his existence. Who is greater? This child is greater than Solomon. And this is what Matthew's trying to prove right here. And he's going to prove over and over, greater than Solomon, greater than the temple, greater than the altar. But another thing you need to write down is another proof in Matthew is Isaiah 60, verse 6. Isaiah 60, verse 6, and also 61, verse 6. Because in these passages, you're going to see that this is the messianic king. This is the messianic king that's going to talk about that the Gentile nation shall bring gold and frankincense and praises of the Lord. When Christ is on the, his throne in the millennial kingdom, the nations, the Gentile nations are going to come to him and worship him and bring offerings to him. So Matthew is showing someone greater than Solomon is here, and also this is what he is. This is the Messiah they've been waiting for, the King of kings, the one that's going to fulfill the Davidic covenant to have an eternal kingdom forever. This little toddler, the the magi, the wise men are worshiping, is that king. And so God, through Matthew, is using this to reveal who Christ is, the greater Solomon and the future Messiah. And also, just looking at the wise men, how they were exceedingly joyful to meet Christ, is showing how satisfied true worshipers of God are when they're doing the thing that they are designed to do, which is to worship God and to enjoy Him forever. And what we need to see is point number two see the gratification of proper worship. We need to see who we get to worship in Christ and how, when we fulfill it and follow His direction, it is good. It is satisfying. Let's turn together to Psalm 84. Because I want to show you what it can look like to have this type of worship that just fills you up. So let's turn together. Let's pull up our Bibles. Let's turn the pages. Let's tap our phones to Psalm 84. It should be almost right in the middle of your Bible. Verse 1 reads, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. 
My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. Not just the, the temple, not just the palace, just being on the outside. I can't wait to be there. My heart in flesh, sing for joy. I can't control it. I don't know what it is. I can't put it into words, but I just sing for joy to what? To the living God. And the implications of knowing how gratifying this is, jump down to verse 10 with me. It says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. It is better to be just one day in the presence of God than to live for a thousand years in this life. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God and dwell in the tent than than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I'd rather be a lowly servant in God's you know, door in the far you know, furthest place from him than enjoying all the pleasures that this world has to offer. That is what, you know, Worship can look like when it's satisfying, gratifying, and even pleasurable because we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. In John MacArthur's book on worship, he mentions that worship should be edifying to us. And to quote him, it doesn't mean that we feel better. The songs doesn't necessarily, we don't seek the feelings in the worship songs that we sing. We don't seek the feelings in the giving that we give. We don't seek the feelings in the sermons that you hear. Instead, what edification means, it means that we live better. Meaning, God is purging us from our sin. He's purifying us. We are justified in one moment. And then over our life, we are sanctified, made more holy to look like Christ. And then in a moment, when we meet Christ, we are then glorified. But what worship is supposed to do, when we sing the songs here, when we see the, the lyrics on the screen, it's not just to hum along with the tune, it's to see those words for you to draw your attention and your, to your mind and your hearts towards the truth of who God is and what he has done. What we are trying to do here by preaching God's word is to remind us of who God is and what he has done, and so that we can then put off the old self, which belongs to our, our former manner of life, which is, you know, is created through our deception of sin, and said to put on the new self, like I said earlier, created in, in the likeness of God and true holiness and true righteousness. And so in order for us to worship in a way that helps us, you say, God, I, I can't believe I sinned like that this week. When I sing these songs, when I hear these words, I can't believe I did that this week. God, I'm sorry. I'm mournful. Forgive me. God, I want to remove, I want to remove that sinful habit from my life. I want to run after you. I want to run after you for your forgiveness, after your grace. I want to change for you, God. Renew my heart. Renew my mind. In order to do that, we need to understand who God is. We understand the, the humility of Christ when he humbled himself in the form of man, especially just a little child, a vulnerable child. But how did the wise men see Christ? If they saw this toddler, what did they see in this toddler that made them bow down? Well, let's turn to our Bibles in Daniel chapter 7. So you get to turn to the right. It's before Hosea. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Because remember, the wise men, they were disciples of Daniel. Daniel is exiled to Babylon, and he was over, he's in charge of all of the wise men in Babylon, over the wise men in Persia. And so when God revealed this vision to him, we can probably safely conclude that he taught this to all the wise men where he was at in Babylon and Persia. So how, how did God reveal himself to Daniel? How did he reveal Christ to Daniel in verse 13? 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, pay attention, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He looks like a human, but he's not. He's eternal and powerful and glorious. And he came to the ancient of days, another term for God himself. We see God the Father, God the Son right here. It was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, this Messiah, this Christ, was given to him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. It's eternal. And his kingdom, no. Sorry, his kingdom, one that not shall be destroyed. No one can destroy God's kingdom. And so when the wise men are going, all right, this is the star of the king. And this little child is going to become this king, or actually really is this king. Of course, we're going to bow down and worship him. And as Christians, we have to remember, yes, Christ is fully God and fully man. And the Christ that we are going to experience one day is the full glorious revelation of Christ that we see here in Daniel 7. And so how can we have proper worship, gratifying worship? One, like the wise men, we need to have humble worship. They humbled themselves, did something embarrassing. They bowed down to a toddler. That should be weird in your mind. But because they knew who the toddler was, of course they bowed down to him. It's coming to church, coming to life group, to having your family devotion, your own personal devotion, with the demeanor going, oh, I can't wait to figure out why I can know more about God, to share with other people so I know God. Teach me your ways. Help me to understand and give me the strength to apply it and use your church, use this community, and use the time with you to do that. Like the wise men, we need to have exalting worship. See how the gifts the wise men gave? It revealed how they viewed Jesus. Not some cool earthly king, but say, hey, you are a heavenly king. And we're giving you the best. We are prepared. It wasn't like, oh, we've got to turn around. You know, we, we're out here two weeks. Let's turn around and go back another two weeks. We'll be back here another two weeks. And we'll be back. Remember, they traveled across the, you know, the deserts of the Middle East to get there. No, they were prepared. They left ready to come and worship Christ. And so that means the posture that we need to have is a readiness to be able to worship Christ and exalt him for who he truly is rather than the the Christ of our own image. It's also having joyful worship. Remember the, the wise men, they, they saw that star, they remembered the truths, and they had joy, exceedingly joy. I mean, think about it. The joy isn't driven by the feelings that we try to conjure up as we you know, grit our teeth and try to be happy. No, this joy is remembering the facts that once we were once dead to our sin, that we were once enemies of, of God, that we were going to experience the justice and the just wrath of God for our sins. And yet God loved his enemies so much that he sent his son to come down and die for his enemy so he can redeem his enemy, to show mercy to his enemy so he can be even more glorified. And remember the fact that I don't deserve to be here, but God says, you, I'm calling out your name and you're going to be running out of the grave. How can we not have joyful worship remembering what Christ did on the cross as he experienced the full wrath of God for our sin? How can we not be joyful in our worship when we remember that we will all die one day, but there is only one person who rose himself from the dead, and it was Christ. He conquered death, and he's given us hope, saying, if you, are, if you just confess your sins to me, acknowledge that you are wrong, 
Acknowledging that, yeah, I deserve this punishment. I deserve hell for all the sins that I've committed. But you offer forgiveness. And I'm trusting in that forgiveness. And I'm turning to forgiveness. And I need your mercy, God. Because if you confess your sins, I am faithful. I promise you. And I'm just because I paid for it to forgive you. From joyful worship, we need to have prepared worship. Remember, they had everything ready in the proper worship. So it's making sure that we are prepared for Sunday on Saturday. As we're prepared for a life group with our questions filled out. And applying those questions, applying God's word so that we can build up our families, build up our friends, build up our roommates to follow Christ. And remember, this isn't just a checklist to do. This is the purpose of these tasks is to help us draw us towards Christ, to point us towards Christ. Not so that we can build ourselves up. That's, again, selfish worship. And the implications of this, if we did this as a church, we will shine bright into a dark world. Because we're showing the world we've been called out of our sin and darkness and into God's marvelous light through the work of Jesus Christ. We're telling the world that, yes, God is holy and we are not. We are all sinners and there's a penalty for that sin. But God loved us that he became man and his name was Jesus Christ and he paid the penalty of that sin. And that forgiveness is available through only one person and that is Jesus Christ. This is why the wise men are bowing down to worship and this is why we worship right now. And as a result of us repenting and trusting in Christ, God will begin a life changing, sorry, begin a lifelong process of change. These are things that we remember to be true and it produces a commitment to follow him and where God will change us. And that is what we can display the light of the gospel to this world. We preach the gospel and we live in a way, in a manner worthy of the gospel as Paul says. Just like the wise men did. They lived in the way that showed that they did worship God. And landing the plane here in Matthew chapter 2 in verse 12. Let's read together the last verse in Matthew 2. It says, Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own way by another way. To their own country, excuse me, by another way. Imagine you're to go to a family vacation. Many of us are California transplants. We want to visit some family stuck in California and not freed from the tyranny. I still love my people out there. Imagine taking instead of a direct flight from Austin to San Diego, Austin to LA, Austin to San Francisco, and said, God's like, hey, actually, you need to go to Miami, then to Maine, and somehow dip into Canada without being caught, go down to Mexico City, then go to Seattle, then go to California just to be safe. That would be hugely inconvenient and costly and annoying and time-consuming. But these wise men did it. They knew it was going to cost them more time. It was going to cost them more energy. It was going to cost them more money, but they did it. But why? Why? It's because of the word warned. I need you to not only underline it, I need you to write, write over it divinely warned. Because what we can't see here in the English is what the reader can see in the Greek is that there's a reason why there's no angel mentioned. There's a reason why no God is mentioned right here outside of just being warned in a dream. Whose dream? Who's he talking about? What's going on? 
That Greek word of, that warned is a divine warning. It's also used in Hebrews chapter 11, talking about how Noah was warned by God. All this, this Greek word of warning is a divine warning, a divine revelation. And so that's why they inconvenience themselves by obeying God. And remember, worship, part of worship is also obedience. Obedience is a part of worship. So even though they had no clue that Herod was a, a bum, they said, no, God, I want to obey you because you warned us in a dream. They got to witness the power of God. They remembered passages like Proverbs 21.30, that no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. That's what Herod is doing, right? Trying to manipulate them so they can lead, him, lead Christ to his death. But God's like, no. They were reminded of Job chapter 5, verses 12 through 13. God frustrates the devices of the crafty, like Herod so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. I mean, think about how powerful God is. This isn't some ordinary warning. He, he, he just, he, here's a dream. Get out. You're like, okay. To display how powerful God is. God didn't send a missile strike to Herod and took out Herod and his court. You know, that's something that sometimes our solution to things, right? Like, we just took them out right now. The world's problems will be fixed. The power of God is this. He gave, he thwarted the most powerful man in Israel outside of the emperor, the most you know, maniac, murderous maniac of Israel. Remember, if they did not go back to Herod, they're on Herod's bad list. And if you're on Herod's bad list, you're dead. They said, okay, we're going to go because they saw the power of God and how just through a dream, God thwarted the most powerful man in Israel outside of the emperor of Rome. Just through a dream, he thwarted the most powerful man. Think about it. The wise men go, yeah, of course, we'll follow you. Because they see how powerful the supremacy of God over Herod. And so what we need to do is take a leaf out of their playbook. And so for us, for point number three, let God's supremacy propel our obedience. Another way to say to propel our worship. Because worship, uh, obedience is a part of worship. It looks like this in Psalm 86, verses 8 through 11. You can turn there right now. You can write that down. Psalm 86, 8 through 11. David writes, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. And think about that. Here's something you probably didn't realize. Every non-believer and believer will glorify God one day and will bow their knee to God one day. Some will do so joyfully, and some will do so angrily. Because one day when Christ returns in his full glory, the unbeliever is going to go, oh, I have to. God's glory is so magnificent that even the hard-hearted unbeliever has to bow his knee and say, you are Lord, glorifying God. But for the believer who's been redeemed and saved for their sin, they get to joyfully say, this is the guy we've been waiting for. Maranatha is over because Christ has come. And so verse 10 of Psalm 96, for you are great and do wondrous things. You are God alone. Verse 11, this is what we need to apply. Teach me your ways, O Lord. Because you are so magnificent, God, teach me your way. That I may walk in your truth. That I may follow you. That I may obey you. Unite my heart to fear your name. Help change my heart. Change my mind. Change my trajectory. And help me to follow you. Teach me, God. I need you. Because I recognize who you are. You are the humble God that died for me, but you are the magnificent God who's going to rule for eternity. 
So God, help me to be ready to meet you. Because remember, this, the Christ, right now as we read in Matthew 2, is in his most humble state. The Christ that we will see with our eyes is the Christ in Revelation 19. The one riding on the white horse. The one whose name is faithful and true. The one whose righteousness he will judge and make war. The one who has eyes of flaming fire. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on them that no one knows but himself. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him. This is Jesus on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. This is Jesus. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. This little toddler that we're studying this morning, this is Jesus. And this is who we worship. This is who we get to glorify. This is who we get to follow. This is who we get to obey. So like the wise men, what do we do? We first just quickly obey. We don't hesitate. The wise men didn't hesitate because they knew who Christ was and they hesitated. Sorry, they did not hesitate, excuse me. We know who Christ is. And out of joy, let us not hesitate to follow what he has to say in our marriage, in our parenting, our work, our church life, and our personal life. Obeying regardless of the sacrifice and inconvenience. The wise men had to go the long way around knowing that they're on the bad list of a crazy mob boss called King Herod. But they obeyed anyway, obeying knowing the consequences. Knowing that if I follow Christ, I might lose family. I might lose this relationship to this fiancé or to this boyfriend or girlfriend. Knowing that I might lose my work and say I have to follow Christ instead. But knowing also it's a harder path but necessary path. Even though you know you're in a marriage that right now your spouse does not love you, to say, I'm still going to love them as Christ called me in hopes that God will use it to repair our marriage. To love your children even though they don't talk to you. To pray for them even though they despise you. Obeying even though it is hard. And knowing, obeying, knowing that God is going to use it for his glorious plan. I mean, think about it. God didn't have to, but he decided to use this wise man for his glorious plan. Remember, this child is going to grow up. This child is going to grow up to live a perfect life. This child is going to grow up to die. And this child is going to defeat death. And how did God protect him? He told the wise men, go the other way, please. And God can use us for his glorious plans if we follow him. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, a tough passage to counsel people through with marriages that are tough, especially when a spouse becomes a Christian and the other spouse is not a believer. But God, through Paul, says that if, even if you are married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever still wants to stay married to you, to stay married and to love them as Christ loves you. For husbands to love them as Christ loves the church. And for women to respect your husbands even though they are not a Christian. Because doing so, God's going to help them, one, be, live more holy lives. He doesn't talk about that in a salvific way. He's talking about in a practical way. They're going to stop sinning sin a little bit less and live you know, towards what Christ wants them to live. Again, they're not saved. Well, love verse, verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 7. How we, in our obedience, can obey God, but God can use it for his glory. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? 
God can use you to reach people that you love. People that don't love you right now, but that people that you really want to know Christ. Culminating this entire sermon, it looks like some of the people in this room in in the previous service who I love, who God saved them out of a cult, many cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, Mormons. And the beautiful part is that it started with one. It started with one person realizing they had false worship. And they need to do everything possible, no matter the consequences with their spouse, the consequences with their kids, the consequences with their parents, to say, I need to demolish this false worship and follow Christ no matter the cost. And then realizing how you know, satisfying it is to actually worship God. I mean, they thought they were worshiping God for decades trying so hard to, through works to worship God when God says, no, I've done the work for you. And they had his shackles pulled off their arms, broken off because of Christ. And now they have to live free and they're just fully gratified, fully satisfied now, worshiping Christ alone. And then finally, they see finally the supremacy of God. Even though the lies of the, you know, the watchtower of the Jehovah's Witnesses, the lies of the Mormon presidents trying to deceive their view of who God is, they finally see who God is and it drives their obedience to follow God no matter the cost. No matter the, the risk of losing their spouse because the spouse wants to leave them now. Losing their children because the children don't want to follow them anymore and talk with them. I know some of you in this room are coming out of places of the prosperity gospel, the social gospel, some other type of false gospel, and you're the first one. Well, you don't know that you decide to let the unfolding plan of God's redemption through Christ, allow that to motivate you to worship him properly, to obey him properly. Because like some of the people I met, it it didn't stay just a spouse. The other came and followed and then their children followed. And then their parents followed. And they have whole families called out of the occult because of who they saw Christ to be finally. The supremacy of who God is. And they just demolished and destroyed every part of false worship in their lives. And truly see what it tastes like to have satisfying, satisfying worship. So compass. Let the unfolding plan God's redemption for the world motivate us to take away, to demolish our false worship in our lives of ourself and instead to worship God alone. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, for you, for preserving your word so perfectly. For allowing us to see how the wise men properly obeyed you, properly followed you, because, Lord, they understood who you were. So, God, help us today walk away changed, to not experience just feelings, but, God, for you to change the way that we live our lives, no longer for the dead past in our sins, instead in a new life with your Son, Jesus Christ. So, God, help us to depend on you, rest in you, trust in you, to give you our yoke and to take on your yoke and to follow you no matter where you take us, God, knowing that no matter which way that we would go, Lord, it is nothing compared to what is to come when we finally to worship you in the fullness of eternal life. So God, thank you for this morning. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.